0: Um, primarily, fifteen, no, Matthew five, seventeen through twenty. Um, so we'll pray and ask um, our Lord's all important assistance. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your Word. Thank you for brothers and sisters present here and not, and even ones we'll never meet this side of glory. Thank you. Thank you that you are always, ever at work building your kingdom, calling people into relationship with you. You are reconciling the lost. We ask that you uh, bless our time now. Give us uh, eyes to see, ears to hear, a mind to understand your word, and a heart to embrace it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, Matthew 5. uh, I'm going to read 17 through 20. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. As you know, I'm all about context. And uh, believers, and even strangely, unbelievers, take bits of the Bible, scriptures, or verses. And they kind of like just randomly take them and throw it out there. And, um, you know, like if if the best uh, basketball player on the best team gets hurt, you know, a a sportscaster might say, well, to whom, whom much is given, much is required. Or, you know, anything like that. You'll see that all the time where even unbelievers will quote something from the Bible. But it's all context. I mean, think of the world we're living in right now. What, 14 months ago, if a young man walked into a convenience store or a bank with a black balaclava covering his face and maybe some sunglasses because it's bright out, somebody would have been on the phone to 911, I would think. Now, you can do that. has a totally different meaning because we're in a different Context, Right or wrong, whatever, it doesn't matter. It's, everything is based on context. Um. Our country, context. A year ago, a lot of uh, civil rights kind of demonstrations, riots, whatever, has a context. Depending upon your own personal background and probably ethnicity and race, you view those things probably very differently because of your own context. Um, so there's, there's a lot of things that are going on in our world like that globally. Um, and I was thinking to bring it home here. If you come to church on a Sunday and you see somebody and they seem down. They just seem like they're dragging or tired. You don't really know their context you're only going to, unless you know the person well, you're only going to know them in an hour to two hours a week. And um, so you wouldn't know, for instance, if that person had an immediate family member whose marriage just blew to pieces and they were now moving into divorce. You wouldn't know if that person knows two different people who are on the last stage of dying from liver cancer. You wouldn't know that. And you wouldn't know if that person's heart is heavy because he's pretty sure one may be going to heaven, but he's almost certain the other is not. And he's at death's door. Or um, you wouldn't know if in the last week this person both observed the the memorial or remembrance of a young child who was brutally violated and murdered and perhaps even knows the perpetrator. If you've ever been in the middle of a mixed up bad situation, you you will kind of have a feeling for that if you know a victim and an offender or a perpetrator in a situation. And usually like Tom referred to sides, usually we'll take a side and we'll side with the victim or we'll side with the perpetrator and say, well, you know, this person wouldn't have done that if they hadn't have done something else. The hard place is to hold on to both of those. And some of you have been through that. So I'm sure what I'm saying right now probably resonates with you. And you for sure wouldn't know almost for sure, wouldn't know if this person just had their vehicle totaled because during the week the roads were icy and slippery and people coming from other directions couldn't stop. And you wouldn't know if that vehicle had far more sentimental value than monetary and even in a way kind of represents a dream that a young man could have had possession of and driven his great-grandfather's truck. So context is everything. There's a whole bunch of things. We're all like that. We've all got stuff. We all have things about us that we're dealing with, that, that we're living through. So that's why context is important. And if you just read the passage I read, without really understanding context, You'd start with verse 17 and think, man, whoever wrote this, this guy sounds kind of ticked off. He's like, don't think I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. And if you don't really know the word, you'd be like, I don't know what the law and the prophets are, but this guy, it sounds like people don't like him because he's a revolutionary. and He's being charged with changing things. Or the last one could even get your attention more. In verse 24, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, if you really don't know anything, you'd probably be like, uh, okay, I kind of get righteousness is a good thing. I don't know who the scribes and Pharisees are. Maybe they're bad guys or something. But I I can't miss that last part. You'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. And anybody would kind of assume, well, the kingdom of heaven is going to be a good thing. So I would probably want to get there. So, whoo, man. And if you know a little bit about the Bible, then you're going to think scribes, Pharisees, okay. Those were the most visibly righteous people in their society. They were the best of the best. Not inwardly, but outwardly. And that's what mattered, strangely, kind of like the culture we live in. <laughs> what, how things look on the outside is usually far more important than what's inside. So, if you got that, you would think, okay, so my righteousness has to exceed the best of the best. Man, that's like an impossible task. How am I going to pull that off? And that then would lead you into what we would call a works salvation. That would make you feel like, this is on me i got to do it, and i got to do it right. And hopefully, maybe, possibly, I'll measure up and make it. I hope, I hope, I hope. Maybe. That would be a works salvation. That's not salvation by grace. That would be works. That's effort. And there are virtually every religion in the world faces that. And I say every Because even Christianity struggles with that hugely. Unless your righteousness, my righteousness, exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, the pastors, the preachers, the, you know, whatever the best people you can think of, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Shocking words. But it doesn't come in a vacuum, it comes in a context, the context of the whole Old Testament. God reaching out to Abraham, blessing him, making him into an entire nation of people, moving them one place, moving them back to another. That nation succeeds and has great successes, and that nation fails. That nation goes up and down. And by the time we get to two pages back in my Bible, the beginning of the New Testament, the context is a nation largely of people who cling to, they are God's chosen. They are favored. They are blessed. They are it. But, life's got a lot of problems because nation after nation after nation has taken their uh, liberty, overcome them, conquered them. So they're struggling and they're waiting for this Messiah. They're waiting for this Deliverer to come. That's the context. And Jesus shows up. Friday, yes, it would have been Friday. I was coming home from downtown, as I do every weekday, and as I go down the little lakey thing, was that, Chester Lagoon or something? Ch- is that what it is, Chester Lagoon? Okay, as I, I go down there, I usually try to get in the right lane, because if you're familiar with that, those roads... It's good for me to be in the right lane because I'm going to turn right on Spinard, which is quite a ways down. But I don't want to be one of those people who drive like I used to drive and maybe sometimes still struggle with wanting to drive like and cut in at the end. So I get in the right lane. And so I'm going down by the water and starting to come up the hill and I see the right lanes are really stacked up. So I'm like, okay, look at my mirror. There's nobody coming. So I get in the middle lane, three lanes, going that way, going up the hill. Look in my mirror just because, you know, context, right? We don't drive in a vacuum. The uh, hypothetical situation about the totaling of the vehicle didn't happen in a vacuum. Somebody didn't stop and you know the rest of that story. So I look and I see emergency lights way back in the number one lane, the, far, the left lane. And I'm like, okay, well, I'll get up here and move over. I can't move over now because it's all stacked up with cars. And so I get to the top of the hill and I'm looking ahead and I'm like, oh man, that goes all the way to Northern Lights. I'm like, well, I'll have to stay in this lane. And I'm looking and pretty soon there's other cars coming behind this emergency vehicle and they kind of catch me when I get to Northern Lights. And APD has Northern Lights blocked off. I'm like, what's that about? Whatever. So I go on through and by now... All these cars are going by me. And even I catch on after a while. And I'm like, those are all blacked out Suburbans. Hmm, yeah, I've seen enough movies like, (laughs) okay, what's going on here? Now I'm not thinking about getting over anymore. I'm like, what in the world? And then some uh, uh, vans, multi-passenger vans are going. I mean, it's this whole motorcade. And APD has Benson blocked off. And I'm like, eh, this ain't bad. So I keep on going, and I'm thinking, I'm going all the way to Spinard. I get to Spinard, and they have Spinard blocked off. I'm like, I'm with them. <laughs> by now it's starting to be kind of cool. You know, they're ahead of me by now, but I'm like, yeah, it's all about who you know. <laughs> so I just keep on cruising, and they get to the Tudor, it's blocked off, and I'm thinking, okay. They're going to turn right, get on international, go to the airport. It's, you know, I don't know who it is, but they're far more important than me. And they didn't, they just kept on going. So I got off international, came on home. Jesus, when he arrives on the scene, context in the Gospel of Matthew, at the beginning of the New Testament, there ain't no motorcade. There's no parades, there's no... Hullabaloo, there's not really hardly anything. In fact, he lives in obscurity for three decades. And then you would say, well, yeah, he did go to the river. He was baptized. God did make his declaration. There were moments like that. But they weren't like this whole motorcade and flashing lights and stopping traffic and all of that. Now, yes, later we have the triumphal entry. And that would be the equivalent of that. APD stopping traffic, though the Roman government was not on board with it, but the people did. So when Jesus shows up, he shows up kind of out of obscurity. And he teaches through the Sermon on the Mount. Most powerful thing. I I read the part I read earlier because that was like the first part of the Bible I ever read. And I read it kind of like I was describing. Like, you know, who are these scribes and Pharisees? And what is righteousness? And what's the kingdom of heaven all about? And that's how some people would approach this. And so he teaches the Beatitudes. How many Beatitudes? Come on. (laughs) A few. I'll let you look it up. He teaches the Beatitudes. And he says crazy things like you're so blessed if you're totally poor in spirit. And you have absolutely like no pride. You don't swagger with self-esteem. You're just like, man, I'm messed up. And he goes on and says this. Blessed, blessed, blessed. Those who mourn, those, the meek, the hungry, and thirsting for righteousness. He goes through all of this. Then he gets... Then he moves into a couple verses and he says, blessed are you. And he's saying that because, if you know it, he's into persecution now. And if, if you live those eight beatitudes, better not, it better be eight now because when the pressure is on my brain, <clears throat> I think it's eight, my interpretation. But, but as he teaches through, the, through those, as I said in September, this is meant to change how you think. This isn't something we just read and we're like, oh, wow, that's awesome. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. This is meant to totally transform the way you operate. Do you believe that? Somebody shout amen. It is. It's the word of God. We don't just get it naturally. And we don't just come to church for an hour or two and maybe read a little at bedtime. This is meant to totally revolutionize the way you think and act. And I am not overstating this. Am I overstating this, Tom? Say amen. Amen. Okay, see? (laughs) I got to work on our, you know, I should have given a a heads up, I would call. (laughs) You're talking to me? Okay, so it's meant to totally revolutionize how you think. And then he gets into... Blessed are you when others revile you, persecute you. Rejoice and be glad. Is that revolutionary? I I don't know about you, but I've heard a lot of people, I don't want to say complaining, but uh, discussing the negative aspects of life as we know it for the last 12 to 14 months. This is meant to change how you think. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven. If you suffer for Christ, if you adopt these characteristics, you will suffer. And if you suffer, rejoice. Spencer's preached on that. Rejoice when you encounter various trials. We should be like, yes! The the apostles did that in the book of Acts. Like, woohoo! We got beat up and imprisoned. How awesome is that? And then they're singing and stuff. But We tend not to be that way. And I think we tend not to be that way because we think that is for this. It's not for this. And if you miss that, you miss everything in the Christian life. Everything. I'm very much a preacher of sovereign grace. Now, you have your will. You have to do things. You have to respond to things. But the Bible clearly teaches none of us comes to him. He calls us. He draws us. He did what happened to me when I first read this Bible in this passage. He opens our eyes and lets us see truth. The Holy Spirit enlightens us. He does all the work. So he's doing that for a reason. And it's not for comfortable retirements and a good life and, you know, looking good in the mirror. I've got some new pants, so I asked my wife, you know, like, how do I look, babe? You know, she's <laughs> like, you look very nice. Okay, now go. But that's not why he saves us. He doesn't save us so I just get to have fun until I die and then more fun. He saves me because he wants to glorify him. The Christian life is all, it's not about me and it's not about you. And if you don't get all this makarios, blessed stuff, it's because you're stuck on you. And that ain't good. I know, I'm speaking from experience. Right? One finger... Three fingers. And that's why he says, you're the salt of the earth. Purpose, right? You remember that? Salt has purpose. You're the light of the world. You don't hide it. You don't put a bucket over a candle or something. Purpose. You're the light of the world to make God known. To glorify him. So that people see the gospel is true. The world does not need to see a bunch of nominal, evangelical, self-absorbed, professing Christians. Now, it's possible somebody could get saved that way, because Balaam's donkey. He can use anybody. In context, Matthew was a tax collector, a high-up tax collector, an absolute traitor, right? You guys, most, most of you know this Bible, The guy who wrote that was the scum of the scum. He was worse than than being one of the Romans because he was a Jew who sold out everybody, his own people, for money. And God uses him to write an absolutely awesome gospel. It's not about Matthew. The The guy doesn't even want to mention his name. It's not about him. It's about him. This is coming and going, man. It's like driving that motorcade, you know. It's like, did you notice uh, the city diner? They could probably ask somebody in there, like, what, city diner, what was that? Well, that was that kind of weird silver building, went by about that fast, right? That's what we're doing. We're like the motorcade ripping down the highway of time. And some of us are probably pretty close to the end of that journey. And some of you aren't, Lord willing. But either way, when you get to my age, you'll realize, man, that was fast. I spent my whole adult life with my wife. Which is both awesome, but sobering. Because, like, that went by fast 40 years plus. So that's what's going on here. So now when Jesus gets to, don't think that I've come to abolish the law. And I thought, when Joel asked me, what's the title of this message? Don't even think. Don't even think. Now, I know I'm not saying Jesus said it that way, but I'm picturing it that way. Don't think. Don't even think that I came to abolish the law and the prophets. Because he didn't. The law and the prophets is everything in your Bible up to that. Sometimes they put in the Psalms or something else, but the, the phrase, the law and the prophets means the Jewish Old Testament law, primarily the first five books of the Bible, and the prophets. So God gives the law, actually through prophets. Moses was a prophet. So it's all of the Old Testament. And he says, don't even think that I came to throw it away. I didn't come to abolish it. My boss at work um, at Anchorage Correctional I always tell people he's even older than me, you know it's like, which chaplain, the old one? And they look at me like, <laughs> I'm like, I'm the young one. But because I love the man, he's awesome, he's not real tech savvy, you know I'm just saying a lot of people when they're pushing 80 probably aren't, and <laughs> who's laughing? I, was that Margaret? <laughs> and so while he's gone for the next three weeks, he gets an update for his computer, and it, the tech department says, the whole operating system you have been using is completely gone. So you have to update and change your really critical like programs and stuff over to a newer system. And I'm like, really? If I do this, Gerald's going to kill me. Because he's not great at the older way. And i pull the rug out and give him the whole new way. But it's obsolete. That's what Jesus is talking about. Don't think that I came to make the Old Testament obsolete, to throw it away, to disregard it. What does he say? I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them to fulfill them. He didn't come to abolish it. It's not not Bible 2.0. Now, a lot of times Christians, we think, hey, man, we're all about the New Testament. And and to a degree, we should be, because it directly addresses, you know, life in the New Testament church, what it's like to be a Christian. The Old Testament, it's a lot of context, and you've got to get the context to understand it. So when there's a verse that says something like, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, I will heal their land, you know, I will hear and heal their land, etc., etc. Not saying that if Americans were to humble themselves to whatever degree, I'm not saying that God would not hear, of course he hears, but you know what I mean, and heal our country, I'm not saying that at all. But I am saying, but keep it in context that was written for the Jewish nation. We are not a Jewish nation. So context is everything. So when Jesus says, don't think I've I've come to abolish them, I've come to fulfill them. And then the next few verses, he says, he says, you know, um, until heaven and earth pass away, not even the smallest little grammatical parts of the Old Testament scriptures. Will pass from the law. Until all is accomplished. Okay. that should tell you some things. If you're reading your word. and You're paying attention. Because then you should think. Well then it sounds like there could come a time. And what does all is accomplished mean? And see that's how I read the word. And he says. Therefore whoever relaxes some of this. Going to be called least in the kingdom. Whoever. Teaches, holds to it, and teaches be called great in the kingdom of heaven. That should get your attention. It's like, oh, okay. So, whoever those people are, if they're not teaching absolutely perfectly correct, they still kind of would be in the kingdom of heaven. But it ain't good. I mean, anybody here want to be the absolute least in the kingdom? Volunteers, we're taking them. Right? Nobody. Okay, let me uh, see what I want to finish with here, because I'm absolutely not going. You're going to get out early. 30 seconds, maybe, but early. Okay, so here's some things to think about. First of all, Jesus says, do not think. Jesus tells us how to think. You ever catch any flack for trying to tell someone how to think? I mean, if you're a parent of a teenager, you've got to wear body armor <laughs> for all that flack. But, right? It's not popular, especially in our day. How dare you teach somebody, tell somebody how they should think? Right? Isn't that the world's kind of, and not just the world, but the world's kind of attitude? How dare you teach someone how to think? What's wrong with that? Unless you think you think perfect all the time, your thinking, I'm thinking, needs help. Right? We all are going to think wrong at different points, and different times. Newsflash, not everybody has been thinking correctly in the last year. And I'm not saying it's this group, and I'm not saying it's this group, and I'm not saying it's me. It's one of us who hadn't been thinking right, and it ain't me. You get me? Right, we we all think wrong. That's why the Bible tells us things like, "Don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind." That teaches us to think biblically. So then we can think, "Oh, hold on." Later on in uh, the Sermon on the Mount, it's like, "Man, someone treats you bad. Don't treat them bad back. Pray for them. Bless them. Turn the other cheek." Someone says, "You're going to do this for me. Don't just do that. Go the extra mile." This is meant to change how you think. It's the word. So Jesus, if someone comes back to you and is like, man, that's arrogant trying to tell people how to think, say, Pfft. of course. I, we all know that thinking is not always right. One of the things I'm trying to, to work on and teach, a new class, I'm trying to get the actual stuff done, is thinking errors. A lot of people, their first reaction would be, well, who gets to decide what are the errors and not? Like, you know, my thoughts, my opinion is just as good as yours. The number one thinking error that has to be addressed is closed-mindedness. It's also called being teachable. That's what the Bible would call it. You have to realize, I need to learn. I don't know everything. That's a shocking thing for our culture, but we don't know everything, and we ain't always right. Okay, so he teaches us to think. If we just dissect that first verse, do not think, Jesus teaches us to think. I've come to abolish, that one which should get your attention. What does it mean, abolish the law and the prophets? I've come to fulfill them. I will briefly read the words of two people who think better than I do along these lines. Throughout the gospel and Acts, the Old Testament, okay, so throughout the gospel, In the book of Acts, the Old Testament is portrayed as finding its fulfillment, sound familiar? In Jesus. And he gives great verses. Matthew 26, 56. I'm going to watch Charlie so he can get them all here. Luke 24, 44. Acts 13, 27. That's probably enough. So he's, this uh, New Testament expert is saying throughout the, the four Gospels and the book of Acts, you see the Old Testament, which is mostly your Bible, being fulfilled in Jesus. And John MacArthur says, in regards to the word fulfilled, it does not mean to add to, but to complete what is already present. Jesus did not add any basic new teaching even if the, the people at the Areopagus are like ooh this is a new teaching this sounds fun let's check it out you know like everybody always does I think on Facebook continually what's the new thing what's the latest thing this is he says this is not primarily a new teaching but rather clarify God's original meaning. Jesus clarified God's original meaning in the Old Testament. He provided a perfect model of absolute righteousness, yes, but he did not come simply to teach and model righteousness. He came as divine righteousness. What he said and what he did reflected who he is. So when you see Jesus say, I didn't come to throw it away. I came to fulfill it. He's essentially saying, I came to be the embodiment of all of the Old Testament. That it's in him. And then I, somebody else not so smart put a note here. Um, It wasn't, Jesus wasn't God because he was perfect. Okay, so follow me. Jesus wasn't God or isn't God, but we're thinking here, wasn't God because he was perfect? He was perfect because he was God, and that's where people can get it messed up. If people are like, Well, yeah, he was a great teacher, it's like, No, he wasn't a great teacher, he's God in the flesh who entered his own creation, and he does it to save you and me because we're knuckleheads and we don't think right, and until we do, we're on the road to hell. And God in his grace reaches out and changes the way we think. He gives us ears to hear. and We're like, whoa, I never read that before. That's awesome. The the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. I think that's me, right? That's supposed to be our attitude. That's why we're supposed to be poor in spirit. He didn't come for the healthy. He came for the sick, right? Remember that? I, I love Spencer's teaching on how to reach recent teaching on how to reach an ungodly world and culture around us. It's like, that's totally it. Contextualization. I was so impressed when he used that word. Anybody else? It's like a million-dollar missionary word. I'm like, oh, dude, contextualization. I bet he had to look that one up, though. You know, I haven't asked him. But that's what we're all about. So you read the word in context. We live in context. And it's our job to contextualize the good news for people around us. So it's not just here. Okay. So let me just say, um, man. Okay, so bring it home. How do we live today in our context? Three things. Let me, before the three things, let me say, it is time Now, here, today, if you didn't catch anything else, I said, please get this. Right now is the time for us to step up as disciples. Right now. Everybody's crossing their fingers and hoping things are about to get better. I ain't holding my breath on that one. You know what I mean? Oh, the COVID thing might get better, but... My understanding was the people in the motorcade, they ain't exactly talking. I mean, they're not the best of friends. So, today is the day. Now is the time for each one of you and me to decide I'm going to step up what it means for me to follow Christ. Okay, how do you do that? Thank you, whoever said it. Who said amen? Okay, I'm going to use a few seconds of my valuable time left to say, isn't it awesome to see how God works and that an engineer can be moved to tears when he's talking about the death of our Lord? I mean, that is beautiful. Thank you, Lord. Seriously, that is beautiful. You're awesome, brother. You are loved. Where was I? It's your fault. Okay. Yeah, so so here's three things you can do. I kind of, at one point in time I was thinking of a, like the no be do or the head heart hands kind of scenario if that makes sense. So, no, read through chapter, read chapters five through seven as if for the first time. If you want to To grow from having listened to me for the last 45 minutes, you have to be intentional. You've got to do something about it. So read the Sermon on the Mount and don't read it with your filter like you've read it a million times. Read it as if it's the first time. Let it speak. Okay, That's number one. Number two, yield to the teaching. The first beatitude, poverty of spirit. As long as you got it all together, you ain't got it. I mean, I'm just going to say that. As long as you're absolutely confident in your ability and stuff, you ain't got it. We've got to be humble. And that's so hard in the world we live in, which is all about, you know, boastfulness. Be teachable. And number three, live it out. Pick one of those beatitudes and say, okay, I'm going to do that. I would suggest the first one because they do go in a progressive order. But pick one of those and live it out. And you will have to decide how you're going to do that. And let this be your warning, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. I will leave you with that. And the end of the chapter, Jesus said, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. I'm all about the gospel of grace. But I'll leave you with those. Hopefully that will stir you to more stuff. And I'm done, and it's 1159. Thank you, Lord. We are glad uh, to be here. We are blessed with privilege, even in the midst of all the stuff. You bless us. You love us. You do good stuff, Lord, and we are so grateful. I pray, Lord, that you would bring encouragement to us, correction to us. um, Move in our hearts, Lord. Move in our midst. We want to be a fellowship of people who love you, And demonstrate that clearly by loving others, especially our brothers and sisters. Be glorified here, we pray Jesus, in your name. Amen. Thank you.